We have always existed, and we are still here. Telling the stories of those slung dead, we won't disappear. We're taking the pen back into our own hands. We live and we breathe and we keep creating, taking a stand. History is queerer than you think. Hello and welcome to the Making Queer History podcast, where we connect our queer history to our queer present. I am Laura. And I am Will. And today we're going to be talking about... Carlos Jaraguay. So that's pretty exciting. This is like one of the articles that I remember pretty fondly. So that's nice after talking about Yukio Mishima, who I did not remember fondly. But in the end, it was really interesting to talk about his story again too, though. I feel like every single person we talk about always have like one aspect where I'm like, oh, this is really good. Yeah. Or like interesting or like engaging or Mm -hmm. yeah, every person has something, right? Yeah. Something that like draws you in. To be fair, I do choose who we talk about. So that makes sense. So as for news for Making Queer History, we don't have too much. In February was the month we did our Q&A on Tumblr, which was really fun, really enjoyable. A lot of you came in and talk to us and we got to talk about a lot of things. I got to, of course, respond to hate like I, I generally do in a Q&A because y'all always like one comes through. And it's like, a fun time. It's always an interesting time. But like, to be fair, we got to like educate a little bit around it because it, it was one of those hate mails where it was like, why do you talk about this thing that I don't want to talk about? But either way, it was a really successful Q&A in my opinion. March's is going to be on the 12th on Twitter. So we're actually going to be doing the Q&As the day before we release the podcast episodes to the general public. Because if you don't know, our patrons get the podcast episodes a month earlier than everyone else. And we release podcast episodes for everyone on the 13th. So on the 12th of every month, we're going to be doing a little Q&A talking to y'all a little bit, a little bit promoting the podcast, but mostly just talking and answering questions. We made this decision at the beginning of this year because me and Dean were actually having a little bit of trouble engaging with social media because like we're a queer project and we get a lot of hate and a lot of it is unwarranted. There's definitely some criticism that has been warranted and has improved our project and it's been great. But there's also some less pleasant stuff. We've gotten a lot of things that are very disheartening and like even if we know that the people are wrong, it's still sort of hard to always be connected to that. So we've decided to sort of limit our so like interactions on social media, not our posting on social media, but our interactions for one day so that we don't burn ourselves out all the time. Which has actually been really helpful. I had so much fun doing the Q&A on Tumblr. It was really just nice to talk to y'all again. Uh, It also reminded people that we exist. And we got a whole bunch of uh, messages from all kinds of people. People who had just joined. People who had been a part of this project for a long time. Which was really great. But since we're doing the podcast, I would like to remind you. Because I felt bad every time I've gotten a message. Because I'm like, I'm not replying right now. Because I check the activity generally regularly and I check the activity and I see a couple like messages because people are like oh they're responding that's awesome and I'm like no I'm not going to respond for a couple months from now because we were rotating the Q&A onto different social media so we just don't get overwhelmed. Um, On March I said before I think is going to be on Twitter so if you want your questions answered check our Twitter and if it is no longer March when you're listening to this you should definitely check I think it's Instagram or Facebook that is going to be is going to host 
post the Q&A on April. Either way, you can find all of our social medias via our website. Mm-hmm, which has gotten an update, which is also sort of new. And if you haven't seen it yet, you should definitely check it out. It's made the website a lot more accessible, and Dean has worked very hard on it. And thank you to Dean for doing that. Yeah. And just follow all our social medias. Check them every once in a while. You will get updates on when the Q&As are happening and or where the Q&As are happening. And they will be happening on the 12th of each month. So just check them out. Join the Q&A. We absolutely, absolutely love hearing from you. And we're really excited to keep talking to you. Exactly. And also, on that note, you can definitely subscribe to our newsletter. Because I've been enjoying interacting with y'all through that and it's it's just been like a fun thing and using our newsletter a lot more recently um we're gonna try to send out one twice a month and that's a shaky thing and we're gonna see how everyone feels about that before making that full decision but twice a month seems like a moderate thing so y'all can hear about us without getting overwhelmed in your little inboxes and i don't know about you but i am subscribed to the newsletter (laughs) and i love getting these updates like i i know what happens with the project but but once or twice a month i get this little email and and there's just like all these articles all these links all these themes all these things that's happening and it makes me really happy mostly it's just sorting our articles into like sort of bite-sized pieces so that you can see what articles you want to read. Like if you're a queer writer, we we just did sent out a newsletter of queer writers from history. Or if you're looking for, it's just sort of like different categories because I like breaking down our our entire body of work into like tiny little lists because we often get questions like that. And yeah, if you are ever interested in just sort of like getting sort of themed like emails of like, here's queer artists from history, here's queer poets from history, here's revolutionary queer people from history, here's queer politicians from history, stuff like that, or queer people from the 20s. There's a lot of categories that I can find. And yeah, it's been a lot of fun. So subscribe to their newsletter. Mm-hmm. Follow our social media. All of this you can find on our website again, www.makingqueerhistory.com. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, in other news, we are going to be presenting at a couple different things in the next couple months. Um, I don't want to release any details yet because everything hasn't gone through, but we will be releasing details on our Patreon as soon as all the details are settled so y'all can know where we're going to be presenting. It looks like we're going to be presenting an entirely new presentation and also one that we have done before. So if you haven't heard that presentation and if you're not a patron, because our patrons have access to all of our presentations, you should definitely come. And if you're a patron, get excited because there's going to be an entirely new set of of presentations that's going to be added to the Google folder very soon. And it is going to be intergenerational relations between queer people from history, which is really cool. I'm really excited. We're going to talk about like, yeah, just intergenerational relations and how older queer people and younger queer people relate to each other. Yeah, which is super exciting and like a really, really interesting topic. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like everyone needs sort of a queer mentor. Yes. And and to be clear, this is not about, like, relationships. This is about specifically, like, group relations, not individual relationships. That's a presentation for another day. <laughs> Keep your eyes open for that. Mm-hmm. If you're an Edmonton folks, mm-hmm. if you're an Edmonton person... Uh, keep your eyes open. We will be probably be posting things about it on our social media. Mm-hmm. If you live in Alberta, uh, you can also keep your eyes open. Yeah, and you, who knows, you might be in the area and be able to see us. Either way, it's going to be exciting, and we're excited to meet a lot of new people. And, you know, if you have found us through 
these presentations and are listening to our backlog of podcast episodes. Hello! I'm sure it was nice to meet you. Yeah, I'm sure I remember your name. I remember most people's names. And if you see us at any of these events that we're going to be that we're going to be attending, come up to us, talk to us, let us know that you're listening, let us know what your thoughts are. We're always really excited to meet you. Exactly. And we're going to be trying out some new strategies uh, with both of these presentations. Um, sort of a different take on land acknowledgements. If you're from Canada, you'll probably recognize that term pretty well. A uh, land acknowledgement is when you acknowledge who the land originally belonged to and the treaties that make it what it is today. So it's it's... A discussion of indigeneity, and we're going to be taking a little bit of a different take on that, and so you can come and see that and see what you feel, because we'd love to hear responses to that and see how people feel we can improve or what people think we're doing right. We're also going to be taking a little bit of a different way to show content warnings during presentations, because we want to try out a thing that'll make things a little bit easier for people while we're giving a presentation, and people who need content warnings. Because, as y'all know, we deal with a lot of heavy subjects. A lot. And we just want to make it possible for everyone to have access to them without having to force themselves through a traumatizing situation or re-traumatizing themselves. Because that's not what we're about. Content warnings are important. And I think that's all the news we have. So Is there anything else? Not as far as I believe. So we're yeah. going to dive right into Carlos Jaraguay. Yeah, oh wait, sorry. We have one last thing. For our patrons, on March 4th, this will be after uh, our non-patrons get the podcast, but for our patrons, on March 4th is the anniversary of making history. We have been around for four years at this point, and I started... It's very fun because I started this project on my birthday. So this means that we get to sort of celebrate the creation of Making Queer History along with my birthday. So it's if, too fun you're, if you're out here on, on March 4th, wish uh, Making Queer History a happy birthday and wish Laura a happy birthday. Exactly. All right. So yeah, let's just dive right into it. Carlos Jaraguay, uh, going to give some content warnings. Yep. We're going to be talking about... HIV and AIDS, yep, and specifically death mm-hmm. uh, surrounding these topics, and we're also going to be talking vaguely about general homophobia. Yeah. So yeah, those are the main content warnings. I will let y'all know if I can think of something else. Yeah. So Carlos Jaraguay was born in 1957 in a place in Argent- Argentina called La Plata, and he was born on the 22nd of September to a father who was a lawyer and a mother who was a primary school teacher. Yeah. He also gained a younger brother after a couple of years. The younger brother's name was Roberto, and they were both gay. Yeah. So that's cool. Ideal. Having queer siblings is yeah. awesome. And like, as, a, as, a, as someone in a family with, with four brothers, I'm like, one of you has to be queer. <laughs> What's that statistic, though? Like in, in One in four. I thought it was one in five. I, I, I'm pretty sure it was, I read it was one in four. I might be wrong, Do you know what? Though. I feel like either way, it's lowballing it. I feel yes. like as someone, maybe this is echo chambery of me, but I feel like it's lowballing it. I feel like it's lowballing it. I do know in my set of siblings, we have we have more than one queer person, and my sibling group is sort of hard to say what number we have, but I'm going to tentatively say I have seven siblings. And you might be like, why tentatively? Why do you not know what number of siblings you have? That's a story for another time. But <laughs> Let's yes. get back into Carlos. One really 
uh, important note to sort of get into your head while you listen to this podcast is the amount of work Will has done on it. I know this is sort of like a meta conversation, but when I started originally researching this article, it was incredibly difficult because this is a person who is mostly known in Argentina. So the articles and discussions of him weren't in English. They're all in Spanish. Yeah, but... Will is amazing and knows Spanish. I vaguely know Spanish. You know Spanish. I I have I had five years of, of of learning Spanish. Yeah, and so I have like a very vague knowledge of it. Yeah. So I read an entire article all in Spanish and 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 worked my way through it. I used a lot of Google Translate. I'm gonna admit to that much. Yeah. But it was it was an interesting run. And yeah, it's incredibly hard to find sources about Carlos, and specifically sources in English, and specifically yeah. sources that doesn't talk about this one specific event that took place after his death. Yeah. So it was a very hard researching task. Yes. But hey, I have a lot of facts. I have three pages of notes. Yeah, we're really excited for this, because I think there's going to be a lot of facts in this podcast episode that I don't even know. So I'm, I'm very excited. I'm hyped to share this all with you. Yeah. So I can tell you that Carlos got his first boyfriend at 16. I did not know that. And they were together for four years before they broke up. I don't know anything specific about their relationship, but I know that after like talking about this relationship, Carlos was just angry at the injustices he faced and mm -hmm. angry that he had to deal with homophobia and had to come out and all of the stress that young queer people have to deal with. And then after that, he went to school. He studied medieval history. He was for a short while a professor of Argentinian history. He studied in in Paris and he took a couple of courses of urban sociology in, in Webster State College in the US. And then after going back to Argentina, he was again a teacher in, in La Plata, his hometown, for a little while teaching medieval history. Really love that history. And then he moved to Buenos Aires with his father and started teaching at the University of El Salvador. So, so yeah. He was a very academic guy. Yeah. And he, while he was studying in Paris, uh, he went to his first Pride March in 1981. And anyone who's experienced their first Pride March within their lifetime, because some of you probably have never been to a Pride March, but... I think most of us who've been to a Pride March remember our first one. Mm -hmm. I remember my first Pride March. Yeah. Very vividly. It was only last summer. Yeah. Uh, no, it wasn't. Never mind. It was it a was couple a years ago. Yeah. yeah. But first Pride March, uh, always very magical. And I read this quote from Carlos that like struck a chord with me. And he's just saying, I cried like never before when I saw the first March. And I'm like, that's a mood? Yep. That... That's like the big queer emotion. Yep. Crying at your first Pride March. I, I remember I was so lucky during my first Pride March. Um, I went with two, two friends of mine, one who was asexual and one who was at that point identifying as gay. And at that point I was, I was questioning and we made little shirts where <laughs> we like hand painted them. My, my gay friend had an exclamation point. Uh, my asexual friend had a X out, like a little X, and I just had a question mark on my shirt. And it was really, really lovely because we got there early and we were obviously like very nervous baby gays and the people there reached out to us and we ended up leading the Pride March. It was such a magical experience that I still remember and I still think about and we were very, very lucky to just sort of be a part of that. And just, it was a small, well, not a small town, but it, it was Lethbridge, if, if any of you know where that is. But if any of you know where that is, it's sort of like not a small town. I'm living in Edmonton, so I, I have a different view of what a small town is. It's not fully a small town, but it's, it's not a city. 
It's a town. It's not a city. And it was just like a really, really lovely pride every year. It was just so small. You saw like literally queer teenagers have booths, which is something that you'd never see in Edmonton Pride as I experienced it. Literally queer teens had booths selling you things so that they could move out of their homes and like live these amazing queer lives. And just like that vibe will always be what queer pride is to me. Um, in case, I, I think I'll edit it out the little jump sound, but our cat did just jump onto our table. So she's joining the podcast. We may have to kick her out if she makes any noise and disrupts, but she's here and she's our guest speaker. She's here and she's queer. Yeah. We've already confirmed that she's very queer. Yeah. It's our gentlest one, so we're hoping that she doesn't knock things over. Anyways, we're going to jump back into our actual topic. So his first pride, go. And then after, uh, after this experience in Paris, that affected him a lot and after moving back moving to Buenos Aires he he wanted to replicate the the pride march and the pride movement yeah. in Argentina and so in 1984 he started with along with a couple of other people uh, he started the homosexual community of Argentina and he was also the first president and they worked really hard on uh, media visibility that was like one of Carlos's main strengths main really? strengths yeah and honestly like really embodies sort of like the um the theme of pride and the fact of pride because the fact is the fact is being proud and out about your sexuality is impossible for everyone pride is definitely something that is hard it's a lot of people a lot of people now especially people with more privilege act like it's sort of an easy place to get to but it's not and it never really has been but especially for carlos in argentina it was a very revolutionary thing there's actually a pretty amazing quote from him in a society that teaches us shame pride is a political response and that's very true and something that he really lived by he was very out very open about his sexuality because he knew that queerness in a space where queerness is discriminated against or made illegal queerness can seem invisible it can seem like you're alone and him being so out not only gave queer people a connection to the fact that there were other queer people around, but it also gave straight people and people who may never have interacted with queer people otherwise an amazing connection where they could look at a person instead of seeing it as an issue. Look at it as there's a person who has these experiences instead of like a vague concept, which is much more powerful than people think it is. And it's a really, really beautiful thing that he was able to do. And it was, it worked. He, Argentina is actually one of the leading countries for queer rights now. And it was not at the time when Carlos had started. That being said, it was not Carlos alone who did this. I'm not trying to give him all the credit. There were are so many amazing queer activists in Argentina. And it's known as one of the countries that has been the most progressive and the most incredible in, in queer rights. And I cannot emphasize enough that people in the history of Argentina, Argentinian queer people choosing to be out and making that incredibly dangerous but brave choice is why they are where they are today. It would not have happened otherwise. It is, without a doubt, the work of the activists and the people who put themselves in front of the media and just told their story. Because the fact is, as much as we may want it to, people aren't going to stop being discriminatory unless they have a reason to. Because being discriminatory is a lot 
easier than working for equality because it's just what everyone's used to. But a person and seeing that there's a person behind this struggle and a person behind just this in general, this movement, it reminds people that queer people are people. And this may be a little optimistic, but I think people, they want other people to be happy. And it reminds all of us that we're human and that we're supposed to love each other and we're supposed to be a species that thrives in community. And that this includes queer people and queer people are part of community and it brings the connection. It's like you see a queer person on television or in the media or just in front of you and you are immediately reminded that that person has something in common with you. And when you are reminded that a person has something in common with you, you immediately have more empathy for that person. So Carlos was really at the forefront of this. Yeah, and he, you know, he wrote in newspapers, he participated in television programs, and everyone connected with him and empathized with him. Mm -hmm. And he was, he also got his first published book. Yes. Uh, in 1997, uh, called Homosexuality in Argentina. And again, it worked to, to connect to people and to show people the humanity and to show people the importance of a queer movement. Mm -hmm. Also, that was really good. I almost cried. Okay, that's good. And then, and after that, at one point, he was arrested during a police raid on a nightclub where he wanted to start a movement of peaceful resistance and trying to get people to sing the national anthem. And then he was arrested for resistance to authority and after an appeal was acquitted. So he, he didn't stay in prison for long. Yeah. Uh, but he has, he, he found the entire event incredibly unfair, to say the least. Of course. As you do. Yeah. And then it was after this event, uh, in 1987, that he quit the, the HCA, the Homosexual Community of Argentina, because he found them lacking in, in how radical they were, and because he was upset at how they had institutionalized. And then he that formed means. a new community called Gays Associations for Civil Rights. And that was in 1991, like four years later. In the meantime of this, uh, his partner at the time had died, uh, unfortunately, by AIDS. And he, uh, Carlos had to leave the apartment that the two had shared together because they weren't married. Yeah. And he went into a deep depression. He moved from couch to couch uh, with his friends. And... He was just really upset at the unfairness of the situation of yeah. how just because they weren't legally allowed to get married, they they couldn't mm -hmm. keep he couldn't keep this apartment that had belonged to his partner. Yeah. And couldn't keep this place and this home that he had built because it was they acted as if they were married. Yeah. They they should have legally been married. He had a quote talking about how he felt like they were married and they if it wasn't for the law they would have been married. Yeah. And so the unfairness of the entire situation, the injustice that he faced in that really angered him. And then he formed the uh, Gays Association for Civil Rights and then they led the first Pride Parade in in Buenos Aires along with a couple of other associations uh, even though his original organization homosexual community of Argentina actually opposed the march of course that's what <laughs> that's what a community like that will do yeah and then uh, th this archbishop said something incredibly shady that I will not repeat and Carlos tried to sue him uh, but it was unsuccessful because there was no law of protection for... Protection against um, discrimination for queer people at the time. Something that Carlos, um, after that, well, not after that, but before that as well, but through this began fighting for and fighting for um, protection against discrimination against queer people, specifically same-sex 
And really? that was people in same-sex relationships or who have same-sex attraction. And that was pretty much his his uh, cause for the rest of his life. He uh, worked really hard to put this law through, and unfortunately, it was only after his death that uh, it took took place. And to be completely clear, it wasn't just coincidentally after his death. It was because of his death that the bill got the attention and uh, it's hard to say support, but I'm going to go ahead and say support that it, it deserved as he had also died because of complications due to HIV or AIDS. I'm not sure. AIDS, I think. And he died in August uh, on August 20th in 1996. And then a week later, people were showing up at the um, legislator at the legislator with photos of him demanding to get this love protection in place and through these photos of him well not entirely but through his face and his image and him being open and people seeing a human the vote was unanimous everyone agreed which if you ever dealt with politicians very rare very rare thing and incredible thing. There was this quote uh, that was spoken at his funeral. Yeah. The funeral procession uh, contained dozens of people. They came to give love and support. And there was this quote from Patricia Ghana that said, Jaraguay will continue to be present in each of our cries to tear down this wall that power has raised to discriminate against us. And they, they carried that with them to instate the law against discrimination. And yeah, they, and they carried his spirit yeah. with him. And very literally, he has become an icon in the Argentinian community. There are murals of him, actually. When I wrote the article a little bit, while back, one had recently been put up of this mural including his face, which just is like such a clear reminder of why his work was so important. And in a time where queerness was mostly invisible for people's safety, he put that aside and he did the incredibly brave but dangerous act of being visible. And of being seen and of being proud. Which, in a time where Poland uh, has just announced, a third of Poland has just announced there are no queer people in it, we can be reminded of how important visibility is. Because that's not saying anyone in that part of Poland should, you know, be forced to be visible. Or should feel obligated to feel, feel visible. But that visibility is so valuable and so important to our community. And it really can't be overstated how much so and how much it can change people's minds to literally just see a fate and to be reminded that queer people are human. And Carlos de Arguey did that. He did that in a way that absolutely shaped queer politics in Argentina and made Argentina, or was a part of making Argentina, the leader of queer politics as it is today, which is incredible. And yeah, it's that's the legacy of Carlos de Arguey. Yeah, yeah, he's just a really incredible person. And I'm really grateful to talk about him. His older brother, after his death, also, there's this quote that always, like, destroys me a little bit emotionally. Because, you know, he shouldn't have died as young as he did. Yeah, his um, brother, Caesar, I think, said um, after his death, I now think of the figure of the martyr, the surrender of one's own body that is fulfilled by death. He always said he was going to die before he was 50, and he died before he was 40. 
Carlos knew the danger, and Carlos knew the danger he was putting himself in, and he knew he probably wasn't going to have a long life, and he did what he did, and his life was even shorter than it should have been. But despite that, despite the absolute unfairness of that, that we didn't get longer, that as a human race, we didn't have him for longer, the legacy he has left is just incredible. It's just incredible that one person with such a short lifespan, because when what age was he when he died? He was 38. He was 38. He had 38 years on this planet, and what an impact he had. It's just an absolute reminder of how much every human life matters and how much every human can do. So, yeah, Carlos. If you want to know more about him, there is uh, a biography written about him. I don't remember the author, but it is called Pride. And there's also uh, a... Um, an episode of a TV show that's a documentary. I will see if I can hunt down a title and I will make sure we put it in the description of the podcast. Yep. And yeah, you can also read our article, which is a lot shorter, but we do encourage you to look deeper into this history if this story has sparked anything within you because there's more there. Especially if you speak Spanish. That's gonna make it a lot easier. It's gonna make life a lot easier. And if you don't speak Spanish, please feel free to like also look at these things and maybe create another resource for people who are English-speaking or who speak another language outside of Spanish so that his story can be spread as much as possible. Because we do not want to be the only resource out there. That is true. But yeah, I think that is it. So moving into the third segment of these podcast episodes, we've come to Wrecking the Queers. Wrecking the Queers. where Where we recommend you... Queer content. Yep. And you wreck us. Which means anything, any like comment that you sent in to us or email or anything, we will sort of like talk about anything that like piques our interest. We'll just like talk about inter- interaction we've had on social media. We'll sort of like get a little bit more into it. So should we start with the re- recommendations or the wrecks? The wrecks. All right. So for today, we are going to talk a little bit more about the hate mail we got. Or not hate mail. It wasn't hate mail. It was a comment that we got on one of our articles, specifically talking about Castro. So we got a comment on our Rinaldo Arenas rewriting Castro's legacy article, which is an article about Rinaldo Arenas. And that was a Cuban man who was sent to prison because he was queer. And all sort of the discrimination he went through and the hardships of his life and how it was Castro's fault. Because he shouldn't have been in that situation. And someone responded with, well, Castro's apologized. And, you know, your country's not perfect either. And they also assumed I was American, which was a little weird. But whatever, that's not the point. So let's talk about pride in our countries a little bit. As a queer person, I understand it can be incredibly difficult to be... It's an incredibly difficult relationship to have with any country if you're a queer person, I find. Because, especially when looking at queer history, you can see the difficult things that have happened between queer people and your country and your country's government pretty regularly. And I feel like having pride in your country can be a good thing. It can be nice and it can really motivate people to create a better country and to work with your country and, you know, do things like Carlos did. I have to believe he loved Argentina to stay there and to do the incredible work of activism of pushing his country forward in the way he did. I think that takes pride in your country. I think that's a way of taking pride and ownership over the legacy of your country. But pride in your country and and love of your country, I think the line is when you start becoming defensive of the truth. When people share the truth of your country, if you become defensive, that's when maybe it's time to sort of think about why 
you have become defensive. And to be fair, I'm Canadian and I do have a lot of pride in my country. We have universal health care, which is something I'm very, very proud of. We have, um, what else is good about Canada? We're having a, a bit of a rough month in Canada, actually. So it's hard to feel proud of it right now. But there are a lot of things that I'm proud of. We legalized queer marriage pretty early. We have been working a lot on gender confirmation surgery and making it accessible to people. We have a lot of things that I am incredibly proud to be a part of and to know is, is in our history. But there are major problems in Canada, major structural problems in Canada. If anyone doesn't know this already, we have an epidemic of missing and murdered Indigenous women here. Indigenous women are going missing and being murdered at a rate that should not exist ever anywhere, but we as a country can do better than we've been doing. And our government has chosen not to do better. It has made the active choice of not working on this, even though the UN has asked us time and again to work on this and work on making this less of a problem and it making it less dangerous for indigenous people to exist, specifically indigenous women. And our country has shown over and over, specifically our country's government has shown over and over again that they are not willing to do that. And I'm from Alberta. So if anyone knows anything about Canada, Alberta is, is probably the most right-leaning province. And so, and I grew up in Alberta, so I'm really used to very right-leaning politics, and this month, February, has been particularly difficult because there's been a lot of really shitty people saying awful things about where our country should be and what our country should do, specifically around pipelines, if anyone's been keeping an eye on that, and around climate change in general, um, just absolutely saying disgusting things about Greta Thunberg, which, if you want to look into that, look into that. And also, the Will has been keeping up with this a little bit better than me, the pipeline in which land? Wet'suwet'en. Yeah. I'm not 100% sure if that's how you pronounce it, uh, but there are a lot of protests going on, a mm -hmm. lot of... Right now, Canada is invading Indigenous land. Pretty much, yeah. And it should not be happening. It shouldn't be happening. They're invading Indigenous land, and without anyone's consent, and without anything that is necessary and legally necessary, and with the UN saying, stop doing what you're doing, Yep. the police force is going in and arresting indigenous people for the reason of saying no when a pipeline has decided to go through their land instead of white people's land. Yeah, and specifically when when there has been alternative routes offered, yes. several mm -hmm. alternative routes offered to uh, the gas and oil companies and they are still deciding to pull it through indigenous unceded land. Yeah, this is indigenous land. This is not Canadian land that like, you know, people still live on. This isn't, you know, government land. This isn't, no, this is indigenous land. This is theirs. We didn't get it at any point. We have not signed a treaty. They have not signed a treaty. We have not paid for it. So. This is theirs. Yeah. This is legally so theirs. that is what, hap what is happening in Canada. And a lot of protests are taking place. Yes. And a lot of angry right-wing people are coming out against the protests. Yes. And it is horrifying. It's really horrifying, and it's a, it's a very stern reminder that in the moments of most pride in your country, you need to always, always, always remind yourself that there is more that can be done and that there are things that you probably don't know about. There's privilege that you have that you probably don't know about some of the awful things that your country is currently doing or has done. And refusing to acknowledge those things isn't going to help you. It isn't going to make you feel better. It isn't going to make your country better. And 
very frankly, an apology from Castro is not enough. I, I, I've never seen this apology, so to be fair, maybe he said everything perfectly. Let's assume that he gave the perfect apology for what he did to queer people in his time. That does not erase what, hap what has happened, that does not mean we should not talk about what has happened, and that does not make anything that has happened something that we are forced or even encouraged to forgive. Because, very frankly, a part of an apology is the acknowledgement that people do not have to forgive you. A part of a good apology, at least. And the facts are, after reading Rinaldo's Arena's story and knowing what happened to him, I don't think I could ever forgive Castro. I don't think I would ever, if, if being in a room, he's dead now, but being in a room with Castro, no matter what he did, I would personally not forgive him for what he has done to queer people. And it's okay if you're a, you have a different stance on that. That's totally fine. I'm willing to accept that. But forcing your stance on other people, less cool. And deciding we don't get to talk about that history because someone has apologized for the harm that they have caused is not a productive conversation. I'm sorry, it's not. It's not going to help anyone. Just because someone has apologized does not mean we do not get to talk about what happened anymore. It's not a it's not an eraser. And if someone truly believed their apology believed that they did something wrong, they would be okay with the problem being brought up again and with the reality being recorded. If the apologizer expects reality to be denied after they apologize, that's sketchy. That's a bad sign. And, you know, Rinaldo Arenas never forgave Castro. And he died before Castro did. And he really wanted to see Castro die. <laughs> so... I just don't feel it's a great hot take to say that Cuba or Castro cannot be criticized at this point, even if it's become the best country in the world, which frankly it hasn't. There's no good country. There's no country that is without fault. But that is my rant on that. This is no shade of the person who sent in this message. They're a great person. I know that. But it, I think it's a discussion that we, we need to have. And you know what? A person can be great and they can be a good person while also, in my opinion, being wrong about something. Two at once. Yeah. And we're not saying this person's name, and I will encourage you not to look it up and not to find this person. Do not send them any messages. Do not send them any hate. If you do, I will, if I can find out who you are, I will block you from our project. That's not cool. We've already discussed it. We've had the conversation. If they don't agree with us, I'm sure they'll move on from our project, and that's totally fine. We can agree to disagree without hating each other. And without putting any more negativity at each other. There's no reason to. We've expressed our opinion. They've expressed theirs. Do not that. send hate, please. I'm begging. Anyways. Let's move into yeah. the recommendation. Which is also me. So I get to talk more. Woo! So. We love hearing Laura talk. That is why you're listening to the podcast, right? Because, like, you are listening to the podcast if you're like, oh, I'm done with them talking. I will remind you what a podcast is. <laughs> I'll take this moment to remind you what a podcast is. Sorry, I'm just teasing. But, um... So, last night we went out with a friend and we watched Portrait of a Girl on Fire. Lady. Sorry, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Which was a really fantastic movie. A really enjoyable watch. I really enjoyed seeing it in the theater specifically. The movie is about... It's a, it's a French movie, so you'll have to read si subtitles. But as the director of Parasite told us... Gotta overcome that, that barrier. That tiny little barrier. Unless you speak French. Then there's no barrier. Go watch it. Um, it is a movie about a painter coming to an island and painting the portrait of a, a woman. And them sort of their relationship and why this woman doesn't want her portrait painted and why this this happens. And, it and is, the agreement they come to. It is so good. It is 
It's a gorgeous movie, Hwan. It's a very... It's just a great movie. It was atmospheric. Yeah. It was beautiful. It was gay. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and give some trigger warnings really quick. Well, not trigger warnings. It's more content warnings. Content warning. Nudity. Lots of it. Mentions of suicide. And mentions of abortion. So if those are things that you don't want to see on film, totally cool. Move on. Not the movie for you. But I also do think that it deals with abortion in a really, really interesting way. It actually, like, deals with it instead of just sort of, like, having it, you know, off screen and, like, being like, oh, this is so emotionally traumatizing. It should be mentioned that this is a periodical piece, uh, like a historical movie. This is a period piece. Period. Okay. It should be mentioned that this is a period piece, so it's not like, um... It's, it's not contemporary. Yeah, it's not a current event mm-hmm. um, discussion of abortion. It's a historical discussion of abortion. Which I think is even more interesting, to be Same. honest. And, like, there were a lot of showing showing women sort of having this conversation and, and I'm realizing. Worries. I'm realizing just now, I don't think a man has a speaking role in this movie. Uh, you have two men who have two lines. Okay. Shared. Shared. We have two two lines from men in this movie. So if you're looking for a movie that basically has an absence of men, here's a really good one for you. There are two lines spoken by men. There maybe men- three. No, I think only two. One oh the yeah, because like the one in the middle. When when in the middle? Uh, when the 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 mother comes back in the kitchen. Okay, but like the line is high or something. Yes, it's like it's not even a line. It's literally just like I I exist. But yeah, hello. Three I think he lines just waves. spoken by men. Yeah, there are three lines spoken by men in the entire movie. And you know what? I feel like you can skip past those points if you really <laughs> want to. You won't miss any plot. It is an absolutely amazing movie. It is a fantastic movie. And it's really enjoyable to watch. And there's a lot of things to love about it. The music in it and the way it's used is really incredible. I got super pretentious about it both during and after the movie. Just being like, this is like how the theme works into the music. And this, and there's like this gorgeous song in it that has been added to my playlist. And I'm, you know what? I'm going to add it to my queer history playlist list. I feel like that's solid. Yeah, just so you know, I have a queer history music playlist on my Spotify right now that I'm going to be sharing with y'all, I think maybe when we hit the next goal. And I'm really excited for that. When we hit 150 patrons. So it doesn't matter what level of patron you become, everyone is treated the same. Once we reach 150 patrons, which we're actually decently close to, we I will release this incredibly long playlist. I will public, like I'll make it public, and I'll release it to y'all, this incredibly long playlist of queer music. And I'm going to tell y'all, there are some bops in there. And there are some things that you probably won't have heard before. It's a really good playlist. And you know what? You can listen to some historical queer music, because almost all of them are from queer people from history. And that's, like, some of it's, I just don't think you'd hear, unless I brought you to it. And, or, like, unless you were going through all of our articles. Because what I do is, when I'm I'm writing about someone who has recorded Zek from history, I like to listen to the music, sort of as research, but also sort of as just, like, getting the vibe of who they are. So that's how this playlist was sort of created. And it is super long now. I think it has a well over 200 songs on it. So, you know, if you want that playlist released and to read it, and also there's going to be a Discord chat created, or a chat, or whatever exists at the time, whatever is the best live chat that exists, um, for our patrons at the same time. So those are two release- two things that are going to be released at the same time. So become a patron, yep. help us reach that goal, Yeah, you get the playlist, and if you're also still a patron, you get the chat. Exactly! So there are good things happening. Exactly. And you also get stickers. So that's pretty cool. You get a lot of rewards if you're a patron of our project. Um, yeah. I think 
that's all for today. Watch. Go watch Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Yeah, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Don't forget to check out our website, www.makinggrayhistory.com and our patron, and become a patron, just become a patron, um, www.patreon.com slash queerhistory, or you can find the link on our website. You, we also have links to all of our social media. We're on Tumblr, Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest. Uh, Twitter. We also, Twitter. I always forget about Twitter. Um, and we have an email, queerhistorypatreon at gmail.com. If you've heard any things that you want to comment on on this podcast, that's a, the best way to do it, really. And you can find this podcast on most podcasting apps. If there's one you want us to add to, send us an email. Because we have just, someone emailed us, or no, someone messaged us on Tumblr, and that is how we're now on Spotify. So reach out to us, talk to us. We always love hearing from you. Mm-hmm. We always really, really appreciate every single one of you for listening, for reading our articles, for being our patrons, for, for just supporting us. You really are getting us through life at this point. <laughs> I think, yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. Thank you for listening. And remember, history is queerer than you think. We have always existed and we are still here. Stories of those long dead, we won't disappear. We're taking the pen back into our own hands. We're living, we breathe, and we keep creating, taking a stand. History is queerer than you think. Yes, we will continue. Yes, we will improve. Making Take it.